I only think of learning opportunities. And everything is a learning opportunity. And it's either a learning opportunity that went according to plan or it didn't go according to plan. But it is still a learning opportunity, right? And so when you look at it that way, everything is therefore worth doing. And it takes away the shame of trying things and taking risks and being bold and being courageous. Because then you're like, you know what? Okay, it didn't work out as according to plan, but I learned something. And what can I learn from this so I can move forward? Welcome to Fail Up Africa, the podcast where we talk about all things failure. That's right. This is a podcast and this is a space where we share stories and experiences dealing with and learning from failure. Each episode, we sit down with a new guest, an African trailblazer who unmasks what it really means to fail and what we can do about it. And that's everything from schooling to academics to careers to starting a business and even personal relationships. This is a space where we can get vulnerable, but with a dose of humor. Join us in getting real about failure. So our guest on this episode is a serial entrepreneur in Africa known to do hard things. Now this person is on a mission to bring leadership to Africa and the world at large. If you have not already guessed who this person is, it is none other than Mr. Fred Swanecker, the founder and CEO of the Africa Leadership Group. In this episode, we sit down with Fred to learn more about his journey and the lessons he learned from becoming a successful entrepreneur on the African continent. That's right. So Fred is going to share about some of his failed businesses, um, who he was before his success, his perspectives on failure and resilience, and I cannot wait for it. So. Welcome to this episode of Fail Up Africa. Omina, I'm so excited. Are you excited? I'm super excited to be joined today by Fred Swanica. Fred Swanica, how are you doing today? Thank you for joining us. I'm very well, thank you. Excited to be here. It's an, it's an incredible pleasure. Where are you kindly joining us from? I'm joining you from my home in Nairobi, Kenya. All right, we happen to be in the same country. <laughs> That's brilliant. Elma, how are you doing today? I am lovely, Omina. I am so excited for this episode. I wish I was in Nairobi as well. Well, it's always open for, <laughs> for travel when you're ready to join us over here. Uh, Fred, once again, it's an amazing pleasure to have you here. For some of our listeners, this is the first time they're either seeing or hearing, um, hearing from you, but you are very much a household name here on the African continent. And we just have to build context for, for the next part of this conversation. We'll just talk about your origin story. And we'd, we'd love to, um, to invite you to tell us a bit more about yourself, the different places you come from and have lived and worked, and more about your journey through schooling and your journey into becoming a successful entrepreneur that you are today. Um, well, maybe let's start from the beginning. I was born in Ghana, um, so I still carry a Ghanaian passport. I'm a Ghanaian citizen. Um, but I left Ghana at the age of four and uh, began a journey that would take me all across the African continent. Um, so every four years of my life, I moved to a new country in Africa. First moved to Gambia and then I, until I was 18, then I moved to Botswana until I was 12. And then when I was 12, my family sent me to school in Zimbabwe for four years. So by the time I was 18, I had lived in these four countries and had developed an identity, not just as a Ghanaian, but as an African. And um, I left to go to college in the US. I first went to McAllister College and did a degree there in economics and mathematics. And then I moved back to the African continent. Most of my classmates wanted, who were from Africa wanted to stay in Africa. 
I mean, to stay in the U.S. But I had uh, uh, started to see the exciting potential that the African continent had, because um, all these experiences of living and working in different parts of Africa made me um, passionate about the continent. And so I was itching to come back to Africa after college. Right. So I joined McKinsey in South Africa, and then I did work with them in Nigeria and. Ghana and Tanzania and continued my travels across the continent. Um, and, um, you know, another thing that's probably um, quite important about my background is that my family's been involved in starting education institutions for a couple of generations. So my grandmother started a school, my grandfather started a school, my granduncle started one of the most prominent schools in Ghana. My mother was a, was a, a, a teacher. Um, and, um, you know, when I was 16, my dad passed away. And uh, we lived in a small town in Celebi Pickery, Botswana. Um, and the parents approached my mother and said, you know, you've got a, such a good track record as a teacher. Your, your children will do very well. Um, can you set up a school for us? And she said, well, I can't quit my job and start a school. I've got four children to look after. My husband has just passed away. I need to look at, I need to send them to college. But they kept insisting. So eventually she started a study group with five children um and uh, in a church building and more parents brought their children and grew to 25 kids by this time i had finished my a levels in zimbabwe and i had a year to wait before i went to college so she made me the headmaster of the school um and i ran it for a year and i learned you know how do you how to launch an education institution with excellence um and i didn't know it at the time but that experience was going to be a defining moment for me that would later on prepare me to do what I've gone on to do with the African Leadership Group. So those are some of the things that um, are most prominent about my, my foundation story. And since working, since moving uh, back to South Africa to after business school, uh, sorry, sorry. so I worked in South Africa for a couple of years, then I went to, to Stanford to do my MBA, and then I came back again to South Africa and I started African Leadership Academy, and then I went to Mauritius to launch African Leadership University, and then now I'm living in Kenya. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Rwanda. Like I said, I'm an African. I'm not a Ghanaian anymore. Love to hear that, Fred, and you know that's quite an. Um an amazing overview as we do as we do get into the meat of things and the aspect that you have you have spoken about we're we're very curious to explore the conversation around failure and alma has a nice treat for you on how we're gonna hop into this definitely thank you so much for that um Omina, so I'm just very excited to hear about your pan-Africanist background. I think that's something that a lot of young Africans can relate to. And then also the legacy of your family. I mean, you are basically educating the African continent. You can say that your entire family has educated nations, and that must be an amazing thing to carry with you. But before we get into these questions, we just want to quickly share with you and remind our listeners about our pillars right here at Fail Up Africa. So our pillars are vulnerability. I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable very soon reflection learning and a little dose of humor so we're going to ask you to get vulnerable now and share your thoughts and your learning and pretend you're just talking to us um, as you you know have these conversations with us so the first question 
comes with a bit of a background. Now, a lot of people know you, Fred, today, and I think a lot of people know established people as who they are in this moment in time where you are, you know, a successful serial entrepreneur on a mission to bring leadership to Africa. But what they don't know is that before you became a household name, you were just a man who had graduated from Stanford University. At the time you had left your job at McKinsey, you had no money, you were single, you were taking lunch and dinner meetings just so that you'd be able to get your next meal. And no one essentially knew who you were. But you had an idea, and that idea was the African Leadership Academy, and later the African Leadership University. So my question is, tell us about that time we don't know. Well, let's be clear. My mother knew who I was, and uh, my, my siblings knew who I was. So I had a few people who knew who I was. <laughs> and my, you know, I wasn't completely unknown. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I mean... Basically, after um, you know working in, in, in different parts of Africa, I had, uh, and living in different parts of Africa, I had really come to see that Africa had tremendous potential, right? but um, we were being held back by the quality of our leaders. And so I kept wondering, you know, what can we do to develop better leaders for Africa? Do we just sit and hope that they drop by accident in, or from the sky, or can we actually de develop leaders? So I didn't quite know how we would do this. Um, but it was a question that was in my mind. Um, and so I went to Stanford to do my MBA. And while I was there, most of my classmates, um, you know, went off to do uh, projects in uh, private equity and investment banking and things like that. But um, I uh, had this idea to develop the African Leadership Academy, right? Um, I, it was triggered by a series of events. I ended up in Nigeria for an internship and I met these families who were making big sacrifices to send their children to boarding schools in the UK. And so I started thinking about, why don't we set up a school um, that can serve these families? And the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, I don't just want to set up a school to serve rich Nigerian kids. I want to set up a school that's going to solve big problems for Africa. So I've been thinking about this issue of leadership. And so, okay, why don't we make the focus of the school to be developing leaders? So um, the first thing I want to correct is that, you know, the African Leadership Academy is not a business. It's a nonprofit organization. Right, so this was not going to make me rich, right? It was about, you know, I don't own the school. Right? It's owned by the public, right? Um, and um, it was a, a vision that I had to really transform the continent that I loved and that, and I, that I saw um, as being held back by the quality of its leaders. I wrote the business plan for the academy while I was at Stanford, but there was only one problem. I'd been sponsored uh, by McKinsey, my previous employer, to go to Stanford. And the deal I had with them was that in exchange for that sponsorship, I had to come back and work for them for two years. Otherwise, I owed them $120,000, right? So initially, I thought, well, okay, this is just an interesting academic exercise I'm doing in my business school class. I have this obligation to McKinsey, to when I finish, I'm going to go and work for them. And then the more I worked on it, I said, you know what, I really love this idea. I can't just outsource it to someone else. I need to do this. So I went back to McKinsey and said, I'm not coming back. And then he said, okay, fine. You have two months to pay $120,000, right? So um, that was my first experience in fundraising. I had to go and beg, borrow, and steal wherever I could get the money. Um, I borrowed some money from my mother. And then I had raised a little bit of money to start the academy. And in there, I had some salary that I was going to pay myself. I gave all that salary to McKinsey. So now I meant I had no money. And so the way I survived 
you know, for two years, I had zero salary. I would make sure I scheduled a breakfast meeting, lunch meeting, and a dinner meeting. So that, you know, when the, uh, the bill came, I would reach out pretending like I was going to pay for it. And then they were like, oh, no, no, don't, don't worry. We'll take care of you. You're a starving entrepreneur. And then I'm like, really? Are you sure? No. You know, and then thankfully they would pay. And that's how I survived. And I'm like, whoa, I made it through another meal, right? I slept on people's couches. I stayed in cottages. And then, um, in fact, of the 120,000 that I owed McKinsey, I was able to come up with 110,000 within two months. But there was a final 10 that I couldn't come up with. And so, you know, for a year, McKinsey was chasing me for their debt. And, I, you know, when I saw their phone number calling, I would ignore it and whatever. You know, and I was hiding. I was a fugitive, basically, right? Hiding from McKinsey because I, I owed them this money. But I made sure that I found the money to pay them back. So eventually, after one year, I paid them off. And there's a very interesting lesson there about doing what you say you're going to do and delivering on your commitments, right? Because later on, then McKinsey went on to become one of my biggest supporters. Many McKinsey partners funded us. They introduced me to people in their networks because they said, this guy can be trusted. He actually delivers what he says. Even if it's a little bit late, <laughs> he always does what he says. Right? Um, and so during that time, there was even a moment where um, I vividly remember uh, I'd gone to the U.S., to try and raise some money, someone had sponsored my ticket. And I was went in New York City. And I went across the river, Hudson River to New Jersey to raise some money. I met this donor, they didn't give us any money. Meeting didn't go well. Um, and um, I was so broke that I didn't have train fare to take the train back to New York. So I remember standing on the side of the river in New Jersey, looking on the other side, I can see Wall Street. My classmates from business school are working in the skyscrapers, making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I didn't even have a dollar or whatever it cost to take the train back to New York. And that's how broke I was. And those are two years of, you know, really challenging moments where I kept wondering, why am I doing this? Thing? Why am I chasing this dream? And nothing seemed to be working. To respond to that, um, before I hand over to Omina, I think a lot of the times as Africans, when we hear that other people are abroad, which is overseas, and they're broke, we think it's a different type of broke, right? It's like you're in New York, you know, how, how broke could you possibly be versus someone else who is, you know, in a village somewhere. But when you put it into context and you say that, you know, you didn't even have money for transport, um, then, then it sort of makes it come back to life. But what would be a quick response to those who are first of all aspiring to the american life you know aspiring to the overseas life and those who don't really think that you were that broke because you were overseas what would you say to them <laughs> i'll say to them that when you don't have a meal to eat it's the same everywhere in the world right so a hungry person is, is hungry no matter whether you're in new york or you are in africa or near india or whatever uh, and if you don't have money to take a, a train fare or to, I mean, to take a train or to take a matatu, it's the same thing, right? So poverty is real, whether you're in Africa or you're in the U.S. or you're in you know, Europe or whatever. Of course, if I was a U.S. citizen, it would have been a different story because maybe I could have gotten un, you know, unemployment insurance or I can participate in social security services that they have, but I wasn't eligible for those things. So um, I would say that, yes, I mean, Life in outside of Africa is often over glamorized. You know, I always really believe that um, if you go outside of Africa, you will never quite belong. You will never be able to, you'll always be a second class citizen. There was always a scene um, 
that uh, you will not be able to cross usually. Right? There's discrimination, you look down upon. So, um, you know, and those things are worth more than money, right? The dignity. Um, and so for me, um, I love living in Africa. And I believe that those of us who are educated and we have opportunities, uh, we should stay in Africa and make it a great continent. And uh, even if you don't make as much money as you might make somewhere else, uh, you have something that's worth more than money, which is your dignity and your pride. And you're able to see the difference you're making. And what I also say is that your lifestyle in Africa on much less money is often better than the US. So you go to, to the US, and you're making what seems like a lot of money in US dollars, but your costs are also very high. So you're staying in some tiny apartment, you know, the, it's cold, the heating is not working, you're suffering, right? So many of these people that you see who leave and they go and live in the US, they're driving cabs, they're cleaning toilets, they're not doing things that you want to do. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's not as glamorous as you might think. It's interesting to hear your perspective. I want to quickly just dig into trying to understand exactly what get, what got you rather to where you are today in terms of your confidence, your self-awareness, um, your ideas of failure and success. Would you attribute it to your family? Are there any specific tools? I mean, did you have to read books to get yourself here? Did you have to wake up every morning, look in the mirror and say, I am Fred Swanaka and I am successful. What is it exactly that you needed to do to get yourself here? Most of it has happened through trial and error, by falling down and you know, failing, under underperforming, not hitting my targets. Missy, so for example, I spent a lot of time hiring people. I put a lot of effort on selecting people, studying how, because I, in the early years of my career as an entrepreneur, I, I made lots of mistakes in the people that I hired, right? 50% of our people that I hired were terrible. And I had to, you know, I, I eventually, I, I, it caused a lot of problems for me. Right, in the early years. And then I learned from that, those experiences before I went on to do much larger scale things, how to hire people. So I'm so glad I had those experiences, right? Today, I'm happy with 90% of people that I hire because I've learned from those experiences, right? Of how to hire great people, right? Um, you know, uh, I tried to get a scholarship to the US when I was 16. I failed at that. That prepared me two years later when I applied I learned how to better position myself. And then I got five, um, I got admission to five universities and full scholarships at three, right? I, when I was in my early career at McKinsey, I was kicked off a project because um, I wasn't managing my relationship with the clients well. And that taught me humility. And I was, I was going around as a smart, cocky 21 year old trying to tell, show everyone how smart I was, right? And they kicked me off the project. I almost got fired from McKinsey. That taught me how to be more humble and that actually you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You need to make others shine better. That's how you actually survive. Uh, you know, that's actually what makes you successful, right? Uh, you know, this first summer program that we, we launched for as a precursor for ALA, we uh, were expecting 150 students to, to come and we're going to make $600,000 revenue. Uh, we only got 50 students to come and we only made 30,000 right? And it was a massive loss. And I've gone and rented these facilities. I signed a contract and I learned a lot of things about signing legal contracts and looking at the fine print. And, you know, uh, also I learned how to make more 
realistic financial projections. You know, um, I made lots of mistakes when I didn't, after I hired people and they were not working out, it took me a long time to fire them, right? The first few times, those would create lots of pain. So I quickly learned if someone's not working out, you have to fire them quickly, right? And, you know, hire slowly and fire fast quickly. These are things that I learned through pain and many, many endless times of making wrong decisions of people that I hired, right? I could go on and on and on. The only way that I, I have gone through all these failures, um, and the only way that I have um, um, become successful is because I actually had so many of these things that did not go according to plan. And what they did was they taught me a lot. That has been the best education I've ever had. It's not Stanford that I went to for my MBA. It's not McAllister for my undergraduate program. It's life. You learn best by doing. Research shows that to be successful in life, the skills that you acquire, only 10% of it can be acquired in the classroom. 20% comes from mentors and peers and coaches. So yes, I do learn from others. I get advice. I learn from the mistakes of others so that I don't have to make them, right? I try and learn from others' failures. So I read a lot. I get coaching. I, I, I get advice. But 70% of your learning comes from doing. You have to go into it and just, there's no way you're going to grow. So if 70% of the experience comes from doing, much of that doing will not go according to plan, especially in your early uh, days um, as an entrepreneur or in your early days as a professional. So you need to relish those. So if I think, so if, so my, if I look at what has made me successful, it's all of those years of things not working, things not going according to plan. It's all of those attempts that I tried at things that didn't go, that didn't work. I mean, when I was trying to raise money in the early days, I was terrible at it, right? I'll go and ask people and I didn't know how to pitch and, you know, I would, I would, I would be nervous and I didn't, but then I learned and I started reflecting and read books and, 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 and today I'm one of the best at raising money in the world, right? So um, these are things that I only learned and they built resilience in me, right? And they made me stronger and, you know, they, they allow me today to go through so much because I've seen so many things. If I hadn't had so many things that didn't go according to plan, I wouldn't be as relaxed as I am when I'm going through difficult times. People are saying, man, Fred, we never see you stressed, you know? And because I've, I've, I've seen so many things, I've been through so many challenges. I went, there's another challenge. I'm like, yeah, just calm down, calm down. You know that song by Rima, calm down. I often play that to people. When someone comes to me and they're stressed, I just play that song to them. Baby, calm down. Calm down, just just relax, because I've seen so much that um, allows me to just navigate without panicking through difficult circumstances. So my advice to you is go out and do as much as possible. Experience life, travel, take you know risks, do things that you're not ready for, things that you're you're underqualified for, you know, fail, 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 learn, 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 right. Go through these learning experiences and that's how you're going to become successful in life. I think what's wrong with failure is what we associate failure with, like you said, shame. But failure in its essence, once we get comfortable with the idea of failure, it's a normal part of life. And so speaking to failure and speaking to the idea of things not going to plan, let's go back a little bit about your fashion business. Things not going to plan there led to better things. But in that moment, what did it feel like to you? Um, well, it felt a bit embarrassing because I had, you know, 
the, the, the idea was really that I was going to um, take measurements of people in Africa, send them to Thailand to make suits and patent. And, and you know, the, the name of the brand was FK Swanica. It was, the, it was a fashion brand for men. And we were going to make personalized clothing for you. We'd measure you, send it to Thailand because they had really good low-cost tailors, and then they would ship it back to you. But the only problem is that the dimensions of men in Africa are different from the dimensions of men in, in Asia. <laughs> so, you know, you would come and these pants would not fit, you know, the, the men that, that, that we had taken the measurements of in Africa. And there were other things that didn't work. Um, and um, so, you know, uh, in the moment, of course, it was disappointing. It was embarrassing um, for me to have set expectations amongst my early trial customers you know, they were expecting this beautiful fitting, you know, trousers and jackets and everything. And things came, it was too tight, it was too loose. And, you know, and then it was like, Reg, what's happening? This thing that you said was going to be, you know, so beautifully done. It's, it's a mess, <laughs> right? So, so, of course, you're embarrassed. You know, your reputation is a bit tarnished. Um, you know, you are, um, um, you know, you're disappointed. Uh, and it's also, if you know, it felt painful when you lost money because I put money into that. And, you know, of course, you know, uh, it meant I had less, uh, you know, to, 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 to live on and so forth. Right? So, um, you know, when um, things don't go according to plan, absolutely, you have a lot of negative emotions that go with it. Right? Um, and, uh, but then on the other hand, uh, I learned lots of powerful lessons from that experience. Uh, you know, so for example, um, I realized that I actually really wasn't that passionate about fashion because I didn't try very hard to solve the problems that came up. I gave up very easily. I was like, yeah, you know, this thing isn't working or whatever, and I moved on, right? It turns out that later on, actually, people were able to build models similar to what I was trying, but they had, I guess, been much more passionate about it than I was, and so they kept going. So one of the things that I learned about is not to um, enter into businesses that I'm not passionate about just because... It could be um, a viable thing. Doesn't mean that you should do it. You have to really do find the intersection of things that are viable and your passion way. And so, you know, one of the articles I've written uh, is about resist that calling, where I say you should walk away from most ideas and moments of obligation that you have, because it's not your destiny in life. And I say you should ask yourself three questions before you do something. One is: Is it big enough? Two, is it something that you're uniquely positioned to do? And three, are you really passionate about it? Right? Part of that philosophy came from that experience that I had. Right? The other thing I learned is that um, whether you're doing a small business or a big business, the efforts that you put in tend to be the same. Therefore, you might as well work on a big business. Right? So it was a lot of hassle to set up that, that, that fashion business and everything, but it was, not, it was never going to be a really big business. Right? Well, it wasn't going to have much impact. So, for example, if you look at, uh, you know, people who work in the market stalls, right, in Africa, they are up at 5 a.m., 4 a.m. even, sometimes to go and buy things, they take it to the store, they're there by 7, they're open, they work hard, they leave at 10 p.m., they go home, they don't sleep, they, Saturday, Sunday, they're working. Very, very hard work. But they make really small money at the end of all that. Then you find the guys who started Google, they also work hard. Right? Probably even work less hard than these guys. But they make a lot more money. So if you're going to start a business, 
it demands about the same amount of effort, whether it's a small business or a big business. We might as well put in that effort towards a big business. So therefore, you know, or something that's going to have much more impact if it's a non-profit. Right? So those are some of the lessons that I learned from that experience. But yeah, I, I've got many, many, many more experiences of things that didn't go according to plan. Things that conventionally you would call failure. But like I said, I stand by my perspective. I see them only as learning opportunities, not failure. Thank you for sharing that, Fred. I think that's a very powerful message. I'd be curious to hear, Fred, what was currently happening in the African ecosystem in terms of solving the problems that is still happening today? Where, where are some of the areas that we're going wrong as entrepreneurs, as, as, as people who are ideating solutions for the African continent that would be important to highlight, tracking back to your message on, on, on solving the big problems that are currently facing Africa? Um, Africa actually should be the entrepreneur's paradise, right? Because entrepreneurs ultimately are people who solve um, complex problems in creative ways with limited resources. And that is the story of Africa. We have lots of problems and they are complex. We have to be creative to solve them and we have limited resources, right? So it's, 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 it's the best place to be an entrepreneur. It's, a, it's, the, it's your playground. There's so many ideas that you can uh, uh, come up with as an African. In more developed markets, so much has already been done that they're now solving luxury problems. They're solving things that are not really pain points for, for people in society, right? They're coming up with things like TikTok, you know, so that they can entertain you and you can watch cats dancing and things like that. I mean, the world can live without that. But in Africa, you, the things that you have to solve are life and death often. It's like healthcare, it's agriculture so that people can eat. It's like you have to you build infrastructure so that people can have a roof over their heads, right? These are. Um, really big, meaningful problems, which are much more exciting to solve. You really see that you're changing the world. You're not just making money or building a business. You're creating jobs for people. Um, and you're ultimately, you know, creating history when you're an entrepreneur in Africa, right? So it's, it's a very exciting place to be. And you're solving problems that are so complex and so difficult that, that if you can solve it, you're actually going to have a long-term market because it's not going to go away tomorrow. Because all of these luxury problems that people are solving in the West, they're facts. They, they, they are things of the moment. Ten years ago, people were on MySpace. Then MySpace disappeared and then went to Facebook. Then Facebook used to move from a place where young people were and then the old people went on to Facebook and then the young people migrated to Snapchat and then now they're on TikTok and Instagram. And next, in five years' time, all these things will be gone, <laughs> right? There'll be some other things that will come up. But we have a 50-year problem with education in Africa. We have a 50-year problem with infrastructure in Africa. You have a 50-year problem with, you know, uh, solving our challenges with agriculture and agribusiness. There's so many, you're not going to run out of business. <laughs> you're not going to run out of ventures to launch in those spaces because there are big long-term problems to be solved, right? And that's why I'm saying, so to so the extent that we're going wrong in Africa, I mean, one, we're not necessarily picking these big long-term problems. For example, Agriculture, it's a huge opportunity. We spend $50 billion importing food into Africa that we should be growing. We have perfect soil and you know, conditions and water, rain, rainfall. Um, but we are importing that. The average age of a smallholder farmer in Africa is 60 years old. Young people are not going to agriculture. You shouldn't be agriculture, it's agribusiness, right? So it's not about digging on farms, it's about you know, supply chain and logistics and agri-tech and agri-finance. And there's lots of cool things you can do in agri-business. Agri and there's $50 billion worth of money to be made. Where are the African entrepreneurs going to the space, right? 
um, you know, and, uh, and there's lots of other things. So, and also, I don't think that enough young people are taking risks to become entrepreneurs, right? Uh, we need to take risks. We need to, you know, um, entrepreneurship, uh, the culture of entrepreneurship needs to be much more prominent in African societies because very often uh, African parents want you to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. They think that if you're an entrepreneur, you, you know, you only are doing it because you failed at getting a job. It needs to be the other way around. Right? Uh, you shouldn't do, you know, you should become an entrepreneur because it's the most exciting role to do. Entrepreneurship should be your career, not a backup only if you can't get a job somewhere else. Very correct, Fred. And when you spoke about failure in relation to how it's built up in our minds from like from school, when you fail an exam, when you're going through early education, we actually spoke about this in, sorry? From your parents as well. And from our parents, right? We actually spoke about this in episode zero where, you know, myself and Elmer were talking about where our ideologies and view on failure was built up from being the education system. And the work that you do is greatly involved in re reimagining education. And I'd be curious to see where reimagining failure would fit into that. How do you think Africa or rather, what do you think Africa needs to do a bit differently when it comes to shaping mindsets around failure? And what advice would you give to young people in, in doing that, as well as probably parents who are also listening to this, um, to this episode right now? Well, one thing I would um, do if I had a magic one is I would get rid of grades. I would remove all grades from education, from schools. Um, because grades rob you of learning, right? Um, and so you typically sit an exam or you do a project and then after one month or two months you, you find out the grade you got. It's just a letter. B, C, F, A. But no one tells you why you got the B or why you got the F or why you got the C. Right? You just know that you didn't meet the mark. Right? And so um, and often it's too, you, you find out long after you you, you, you've taken this assessment. What I rather believe we should be doing is giving young people feedback. So even if you got an A, what are the things you did well? What are the things you could have done better? So that the end goal is mastery, not just to, so that you, because no matter what level you found yourself in, you can always get better, right? So what we should be doing is, is giving people feedback. Okay, you did that project. Here's the, here's the five things you did well. Here's the four things you could have done better, right? These are the things that you should work on. So then it, it, it allows you, it, it builds in you the confidence to keep trying, right? I would also have parents and, um, and uh, teachers stop shaming people who don't succeed in exams or in projects that they do. Because often, I remember they would write on the board, these are the people who got the A's. These are the people who got the C's. These are the people who got the Those of you who got to stay behind. You are being punished. You know, you have all of these things that make you less willing to try. And so you always want to then follow the safe path. And people who follow the safe path do not change the world. We need more people who will go off the path, who will do dangerous things, who will take risks. And they must not be scared of failing. They must be like, oh, that's a great learning opportunity. I'm going to go in that direction, even though there's no clear path and there's, a, there's, there's, there's danger, it could not work. I know I'm going to learn a lot. So I'm going to go in that direction. 
Thank you so much for that, Fred, and all the insights that you've provided with um, provided us with today. It's been absolutely incredible. Fall down five times, get back up on the sixth time, um, and that you success is a result of all the mistakes and failures that you've already encountered. So thank you so, so much for that. Before we say goodbye to you, here at Fail Up Africa, we have an exciting segment that we call Rapid Fire Questions. Um, it is a, seg- a segment, rather, that our listeners, listeners oh, English is gone, can expect to hear from us every single episode that we have um, so we're going to ask you very quick questions and we just want an answer that is short with no explanations will it get you in trouble we're not sure hopefully not but no explanations just an answer and today's rapid fire segment is called throwback to my 18 year old self i'm sure that's not too that's not too far away hey fred that was just just the other day <laughs> where you were 18 <laughs> Just, just last week. All right. So are you ready? Let's get into it. I want you to think back to the time where you were 18 years old and you were the headmaster at your mother's school. What is the one mistake or serious error of judgment that you made during this time? Very quickly. Hmm. Man, that's such a long time ago. Um, <laughs> perhaps not collecting school fees from a parent who was supposed to pay on time. I have so much to say. Go ahead, Nodmina. <laughs> That's a funny one, friend. Uh, next question. Finish the sentence. When I was 18 years old, failure was... An exciting learning opportunity. Ah, well, you were 18 already. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, what is something you were really bad at when you were 18 years old? Uh, I was really bad at following fashion trends. So whenever everyone was wearing one thing, I wanted to be different and I would wear something else. Fred was different from the get-go. <laughs> uh, next question, Fred. Netflix is making a movie about your life. Who would you tap to play you in the movie? Uh, Michael B. Jordan. Oh, of course. <laughs> Oh, of course. You know, I was I was banking on Idris Elba or Will Smith, but of course it had to be Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> and last two to go. So given the context of this podcast, what is the one piece of advice that you would give your 18-year-old self? Try as many things as possible. Live as diverse life as possible. Go out and experience life and do things that you're not ready to do. And that will prepare you much better than anything you ever learn in school. Brilliant advice, Fred. Last question. When you were 18 years old, thinking about your future, what did you hope you would be remembered for? I hope that I would be remembered for having made a difference to Africa. And I guess you can clearly say that you have definitely achieved that goal and you will be remembered for that. That wraps us our um, rapid fire questions. And Omina, I hear you've got something special. But of course, so before we let you go, Fred, um, there's one thing we'd like you to do, and this is something only done at the Fail Up Africa podcast. In true African fashion and culture, we'd like for you to show us your best dance moves on your way out of this episode. And we didn't get your favorite song come down, but we got something just as busting. Madam producer, would you would you like to queue up some music for us? <laughs>
Awesome, awesome, Fred. I can see that back when you were 18 and even now, you were definitely the life of the party. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. Like like Omina said, this is a first ever only on Fail Up Africa. Will you see Fred Sonica dancing? Um, so I think that'll be our tagline to get everyone to watch and listen to this. Omina, how's this episode been for you? Wow. Fred has a, such a brilliant perspective to life and you can only get this from from such one-on-ones and definitely looking forward to seeing how, how the next decade especially looks like for not just the, the, the podcast and Fred, but a lot of the lives that he's impacting. So thanks so much for sharing this with us, Fred. You're most welcome. 100%. All the best for the rest of the, of the episodes. Thank you so, so much. What an insightful episode with Mr. Fred Swanaka. I hope you feel challenged. I hope you've learned something and I hope that you see that failure is something we all go through. More experiences are coming your way, so make sure to let us know in the comment section who you want to hear from in this podcast and what topics you'd like to hear. Shout out to the winners of the hashtag My Failure Moment contest on Instagram that we hosted here at Fail Up Africa. First place went to a group actually. We had Philbert Minja. Stacy Gary and Adebanjo Oluwabunmi. Shout out to you guys for coming in first place. Second place, we had Philip Ogonda. And third place, Moses and Bukan. Shout out to every single one of you for sharing these moments with us. Awesome stuff. And we've got more competitions coming up. So make sure you follow the Fail Up Africa page. Make sure that you are interacting with everything that we do. We are working on more experiences. So you definitely want to stay tuned. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and see what we have in store for you. Thank you again for joining us on this episode. It has been awesome. I'm your host, Alma Akab, and... Boniface Omino, as well as the local noisemaker, and we'll see you all next time.